Good morning, everybody. Uh, today we're going to learn about death and being able to conquer the fear of death. And if you can conquer the fear of death, then you can really live. Um, my illustration this morning is footsteps. It'll be on every slide you see, which aren't many. But <coughs> this this is following a path and of uh, the only lines of um, any Robert Frost poem I ever know, and I think it's the only one that anybody ever knows that I've seen, is that two roads diverged in the wood, and I took the one less traveled. And, you know, we know what he means by that. He means that, you know, we're not going to follow the herd. It's best not to. And that um, will... Uh, <coughs> You know, also uh, not be like lemmings who jumps jump off a cliff. Uh, but one of the when it comes to roads, um, the there's only one road that any of us can take to death, and that is inevitable. Uh, none of us are going to get out of this alive. So um, the the fact that there are not two options when it comes to that means that you know where we end up in all of us having to deal, every member of the human race having to deal with uh, the, the, the death that looms in their lives is, uh, <laughs> sorry. So uh, today's lesson is about the hope and comfort that surrounds us because we know what happens or follows after death. Uh, there are so many things that we don't really know about even later on today or tomorrow. We cannot predict or know what's going to happen in the near future. But one thing is for sure, that when Jesus returns, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, when Jesus returns, you're going to return with him. And that's a guarantee. Now, if you're alive when Jesus returns, then he's coming to get you. Now, it's not going to be like, well, is it a bird? Is it a plane? Is that Jesus? You know, it's as we see in 1 Corinthians 15, it's twinkling of an eye. But <clears throat> the, those who are in the body of Christ who have already died come with him. And we, if we are alive and remain, are united to with them in, in the heavens. Uh, so uh, that is a guarantee. No matter what happens tomorrow, Jesus is coming back and we're going to be right behind him. So. If you have overcome the fear of death, then you really know how to live. And that's what Paul's going to get us into this morning. And uh, we'll get right into that after we pray and sing some songs. So let's uh, open up in prayer. Let's thank God for the opportunity that we have to hear and learn his word and to be able to be comforted and gain hope. Uh, and to, when we lose hope, at times that happens that it is renewed by his word. And when our hope is renewed, our joy returns. So with that, let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity and privilege of being together and having your word, being able to just sit back and have you teach us about life, and in this case today about death. You have given us, Father, the ability to know that in the most spectacular of ways, 
that our Lord and Savior is going to return to this earth. And we who are believers in Him are going to return with Him. That means all of us. The great and the small, the most mature believers, brand new believers, we're all going to return with Him by Your grace. And so, Father, if we have conquered death and we have through Christ, Teach us, Father, to let go of the things that are holding us back and to truly live. We ask that through your Spirit, our hearts would be enlightened. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. All rise, please.
right, we're going to start in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Contact with the dead is a popular theme and has been in all cultures. Uh, In Greek mythology, there is a girl by the name of Eurydice. I think that's how you pronounce it. Anyway, I'll go with Eurydice. That doesn't sound right. Eurydice. Let's call her Eunice. So Eunice married Morpheus. Uh, sorry, Orpheus. Let's call him Bob. <laughs> Eunice and Bob. Uh, Orpheus is a skilled musician. Uh, and on their wedding day, uh, Eudeus or Eunice is, steps on a viper. She's dancing at her wedding. She steps on a viper. She gets bitten. She dies. And, of course, in Greek mythology, you go to the underworld, and you're under the, the nose of Hades, who's the god of the underworld, and uh, her Orpheus is so brokenhearted that he starts to play and sing all over uh, dirges and sad, sad songs about himself and the loss of his bride. The other gods notice this, and they're so brokenhearted for him, and his music is so wonderful that they say to him, Orpheus, why don't you go to the underworld and try and get her out? So he does. And he gets to, uh, his name is Cerberus, who is the guard, (laughs) Bill, yeah, Bill's the guardian of the underworld. And uh, Orpheus plays a song that puts him to sleep. I use my messages. He uses music. And he, uh, Orpheus goes in there and he convinces Hades and his wife Persephone to allow (coughs) Eunice to go. Under what? There's always a right. Greek mythology is never like, all right, yeah, take her and go. End of story. So Orpheus has to lead her out. She has to stay behind him, and he can't turn around to look and make sure she's still following. Not until they get into the upper world. They both have to be out. And, of course, just as he gets out into the upper world, of course, because Greeks are just tragic, he turns around. She's got like one more step to go, and boom, she gets snapped back to the underworld. It's a cool story. I love Greek mythology. They really told great stories. But it, it tells us something about what? When, when, a, when people die or loved ones die, we want to speak with them contact with them go get them you know even if they haunted us or maybe you wouldn't want that for some popular in our culture of course is this is uh, the movies are made from it contacting the dead at the turn of the 20th century Ouija boards became all the rage right and you could ask you could figure out where grandpa hid all the money or something uh, going to mediums or spiritualists and having them pretend that they're talking to your loved ones. This was all uh, very popular, became very popular. And, of course, these movies, they're all you know, fun movies. Um, and uh, 
They're about contact with the dead. Concerning death then, what we see from Paul is that not knowing means no hope, which means grief. And again, footsteps here are for the sake that when Christ comes for us or if we're alive at the rapture or when he comes back, we're coming with him. Now, it's interesting because in the text it's going to say we come with him from heaven if if you've died. But then your body rises. The dead in Christ shall rise. And it, for the, I put this picture in my mind of me descending with the Lord so excited and then seeing my dead body come up out of the ground and be like, ugh. You know, and that's coming up and I'm, whack. You know, right? And then I'm a new man. I don't know. Don't quote me on that. That's not biblical. But he tells us both. We're coming back with him. And if we've died, we will rise. Not knowing means no hope, and no hope means grief. So what about death? In what culture, past religion, has every believer in that religion been guaranteed resurrection? Where? Never. Not even close. In Greek mythology and any other mythologies, Egyptian or Babylonian, uh, you know, you, you have to please the gods, appease the gods. Just getting to heaven is a process. I remember I did a brief study on Egyptian mythology years ago, and, you know, that, there's a reason why they packed all their stuff with them when they died. The rich people did. They brought food and servants. God Almighty, if you were a servant, you know. Uh, <laughs> Can I quit? You know, could this be my last day? I'm putting in my notice. No, you're going to go with them. And that's because in the underworld, you had to get past all of these deities who were going to like ask you questions and try and trick you, and you had to be smart and you had to figure it out. And then, you know, like who's who has eternal life? But in Christianity, and this is brand new to the world, brand new. And to the Thessalonians, these pagan people, they're brought up pagan. That because you have accepted and believed in Christ as your Savior, you're coming back with Him. You are heaven bound. You have eternal life. Do not fear death anymore. And they they had to be, I mean, elated, sure. I mean, initially, you hear this, you're elated. But doesn't it creep back into your mind? Is that really true? Doesn't it happen to us that we learn all these doctrines that we think are just fantastic? We love them. And then there's times where we say, is that really true? We start to doubt, is God really for me? Is God really going to deliver me? Is God going to do what he says he's going to do? And the Thessalonians doubted. They must have. Because Paul writes it to him here in chapter 4. He mentions it again in chapter 5. And in the second letter to the Thessalonians, which we'll do after this one, he writes it again in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. that He's telling them, reiterating, that yes, you are going to be resurrected. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4.13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you do not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. 
So this word uninformed, see that word? It means do not know. You do not know. All right, so same uninformed. It literally, it means we don't want you to not know. Brethren, right? You are, we're family. Those who are asleep. Now, Paul uses the metaphor for sleep. He uses it in this paragraph three times. So this paragraph is about death. He's got sleep three times, then he's got the word dead, the dead in Christ, and then he refers to them, the dead, again. So five times in this paragraph, 13, 13 through 18, right? It's the last section of 1 Thessalonians 4. Five times he mentions the dead. And that's what this is about. This is about the dead. And <clears throat> sleep is a metaphor. You know, it's, it's commonly used for it, not just here, but throughout the Bible. Those who do not know about their loved ones who have died have no hope and therefore they grieve. Not knowing does not change, however, the reality of whether they're in heaven or not. Right? So, whether it, the problem is not knowing, the problem isn't uh, the uh, lack of, uh, I'd say, uh, the, the lack of. Uh, finality to what this is, that the, all, all believers will be resurrected. The unbeliever will also be resurrected, but unto judgment. And so heaven is for all believers, and whether, you know, just say you're some, you're, your loved one is saved, and you don't believe that or whatever, and you're grieving, it doesn't change the fact that they're saved, is my point. So the problem is, as Paul states here, we don't want you to not know, brethren. We don't want you to be uninformed. And therefore, if we are informed, and then no hope becomes hope, and grief becomes joy. And if I've conquered death, and I know my Lord's coming back, and this world that wants to make me fear a lot of things. There's a lot of things designed in this world for the purpose of making you and me afraid. If I don't fear them, then I have joy. So not knowing is used to instill fear. Right? It's a common phrase. Fear of the unknown. Who doesn't know or heard that phrase? Fear of the unknown. It's common it's not knowing that makes people afraid. And this is used. It's used to market products. Uh, you know, I just saw a commercial, you know, uh, what commercial we see? The crazy commercials they have. <laughs> we don't normally watch commercials, but there's a show we're watching lately that has a commercials attached to it. And I'm like, man, oh, man. And it's all about, look, you're unhappy because you don't have this, whatever it is, you are so unhappy. But look at this handsome dude on TV who's so happy because he's driving this electric car. Don't you want one? Right? And he's going on and on about how his electric car is just the best. It's making him so happy. And then in the commercial, he takes his hands off the wheels and he's just playing with his cufflinks and he's looking around and you're like, man, I don't even have to drive this thing. How long before it thing crashes, drives you off a cliff? I don't know. You trust it? Really? Plus, you're driving in Oregon. You're not the problem. They are, right? Anyway, 
lies are popular, always have been. Truth is vilified. Just being honest with the truth has always been vilified. Uh, what's used to make you fear? Well, we turn on the news. That's what I did today. I actually read uh, Victor David Hansen's latest article and about why the United States has lost its presence in the world. And he gave ten things, and I was like, this is perfect for today's message. There's the economy. Right? Uh, we're told it's doomed. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We've been told about recessions and depressions coming. They They keep coming. I guess they're always coming, but... You know, if if people go broke, um, okay, and then more violence comes from that. That was always that's always my concern: is people getting uh, the more they they don't have, the more the criminals want to do crime. Uh, so there's the economy, there's inflation, the price of gas, the pandemic. That was a good one. When the pandemic first came out, the truth in the news was that 4% mortality rate. I remember that because when I read it, I, I read that and I drove here and I literally opened all the doors with my elbows because 4% is high. And then you find out it's not even close. But it made people fear. It made people fear each other. Soon at, when the pandemic started, I used to walk through a park in, in Dallas, and uh, as I was walking, there's this is obviously outside, and there's no one around. But as I'm walking down this path, this guy just stepped right off, and he's, you know, gave me a look like, "Don't come near me." People are afraid. Pandemic showed that. How about the world not using the dollar as its standard of exchange? That has been in the news a lot. Violence in the streets. I read an article about pesticides and GMOs the other day. Made you just want to raise your own cattle. <laughs> I like. What am I going to do? Buy like expensive food, I guess. The Chinese spy balloon. What was that about? How about nuclear war with Russia out of the war in Ukraine? Chilled relations with Israel. That has occurred. But America has not been with this administration, as pro-Israel as, as those in the past. Uh, open border and a transsexual beer spokesman. I guess I should say spokesperson. Ridiculous. Right? What is this world coming to? Who knows? You know what I say to that? Jesus is coming back. And you know what? I'm coming with him. I'm coming with him. You're coming with if If the rapture doesn't happen before we're all dead, we're coming with him. So just as you start, you reading or you're thinking, you can have peace one minute and lose it the next because the things that are around us that are designed to make us fear, we have looked at them, we've pondered them, we've you know, uh, tossed them around, and then all of a sudden our brains are full of, Anxiety and fear. So what do you say to yourself? Prayer, just say it to yourself. Remind yourself, the Lord's coming back. The Lord's coming back. Psalm 37.10 Rest in the Lord 
37.7, sorry. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way. Now that Bill Gates, he's going he's gonna to release another pandemic and then fill the rest of us with all his vaccines and stuff. Oh my God. Right? I, he might. He might try. Who, who, I don't care. Anybody who has the most money, more money than the universe, right? What's he going to do against Jesus Christ? Not a thing. Jesus already in his first advent allowed himself to be beaten up. He allowed himself to be crucified, but that no more. When he comes back the second time, both rapture and second coming, when he returns, no one's going to say no to him. Nobody. Verse 10, yet in a little while the wicked man will be no more. I always love the Bible's use of the phrase, little while. It's always a lot longer than we think. Yet in a little while the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. So in our passage, the theme is hope and comfort from knowing the future program of the coming of the Lord. That's the theme of this paragraph. Uh, Let's read it, the whole paragraph together. Look at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Why do the Thessalonians need this? Uh, well, they've obviously doubted. And it makes sense. They're brand new believers. They've only been believers a few months, and they've come from a pagan background to which this truth is very foreign. And so it kind of makes Now, I'm conjecturing, but it kind of makes sense that they would have been pressed. They're very persecuted, and they would have started to doubt this. So Paul writes it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's wonderful to see that in all the letters of the New Testament, there's always an issue outside of, like, Ephesians is the only letter that doesn't deal with any issues. Uh, but of all the other letters, there's always an issue with the reader that has to be addressed. And God designs it this way. Because the Thessalonians have this issue so God can record for us this truth. Because Thessalonians has it three times. And that's that's uh, more frequent than other letters. And so God has made it so that all that we need, every issue that we're going to have, somebody had it in the early church and it was addressed in a letter. And God is smart enough to make sure that every issue that we'll ever have, that's important, uh, is going to be addressed. So the key term, as I said, is dead. And we know they've been persecuted a lot. Could it be that 
Some of them have lost loved ones in the persecution. A few months have gone by since Paul left. It's a severe persecution. As we, if you, in Acts chapter 17, they literally went into this guy's house, Jason, and dragged him out and drugged him to, not drugged him, but took him to uh, the authorities. And they would have all been happy as clams if, if they killed him. Some of them could have been killed. But in, again, in a pagan mind, a newly saved person, what if people die by natural causes? Paul told them, look, you have eternal life. You're going to heaven. You're going to be resurrected. And then I'm looking at old Uncle Harry here, and he's, he's cold as ice, dead. And uh, so is, that, is he really going to be resurrected? Because it don't look like it. And again, we're talking about new believers in a pagan world. In, our, in the Western world, resurrection has been spoken of. And, you know, everybody has celebrated Easter for, uh, you know, centuries. So the idea of resurrection is not so alien to a modern Western mind, but to their mind, very much so. <clears throat> now, why haven't I mentioned the rapture yet? Or premillennialism, mid uh, not millennialism, sorry, pre-tribulation rapture, mid-tribulation rapture, post-tribulation rapture. If you don't know anything about those, you're blessed, I would say. I was going to bring out my big, I have these theological books that would say you'd, I'd disappear behind them, that go into that in great detail. We are going to go into that in detail coming up. Put a pin in it. But the reason why I don't want to deal with it first is because Paul's not dealing with it. Paul is not here trying to establish his eschatological theology. The Greek word eschatos means last. And so eschatology is a study of the last times. Right? End times is actually not the real term for it. It's last times. He's not setting down his dispensationalism either. Not here. Not in this passage. He's not doing that. What Paul is trying to do is to relay a truth that is going to be comforting and give hope to his readers. Now, I'm a pre-tribulation rapture guy. And pretty much everybody in this audience is, I would think. Because we're all brought up on that. <clears throat> I've done a lot of work in learning. The mid-tribulation one is kind of hokey. The post-tribulation one has some merits to it. But one of the advantages it has is that it's simple. But it has problems. And so uh, what, I, what all that means is that, is the church going to go through the tribulation or are we going to be raptured out before the tribulation happens? And uh, passages point to most, you know, if you put them all together, pre-tribulation makes the most sense. But you can't really find a passage in the Bible that says, all right, guys, listen, this is going to happen and then this is going to happen and then this is going to happen. You can't find it. And so that's why excellent theologians, in my opinion, believe in a post-trib rapture. There's a lot of them. In fact, my big fat theology book that I needed for school at Corbin University, the guy who wrote that, who wrote that? <laughs> That's why he's writing theology books and I'm not. Uh, <clears throat> the guy who wrote that is Wayne Grudem. 
is super popular in the in the world of uh, theology and in evangelical circles. In fact, most of the seminaries are using his book as a textbook, not Schaeffer's theology, which I'm sure they're still using at Dallas Theological Seminary. But Wayne, Doc, Dr. Grudem, he, he spells it all out, and then he says, I believe in a post-trib rapture. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to fight with him. Certainly not. He's like 80 years old. He'd probably still take me, though. I'm not going to fight with him. I'm not going to fight with people about that. Look, here's the scripture. Read it. If you come to that conclusion, fine. I come to a different conclusion. But what do we have in common? Because there's a lot of things that are not answered in the scripture for us that we would like to know. But what do we have in common? The Lord's coming back. And I'm going to be resurrected. And I don't have to worry about all the stuff that's happening down here right now. That is the point of this passage. Not it's it's not about well what you know trib, post trib, mid trib. That's not here. The purpose of this paragraph is about hope and comfort. It's to give hope and comfort to its readers. And as I said, we'll tackle the issue. It might be next Sunday. Because uh, uh, Paul's going to mention it again in chapter 5. Or the, that's another rapture passage. And I'll show you all the passages. I'll even uh, summarize a document for you that I'll put online. And, and then you can reference it. <clears throat> the purpose of this paragraph is to give hope and comfort to its readers. Knowing eschatology is great. But if I'm... I've known people who know a lot of eschatology and they seem to be very angry uptight people who are, are looking for the antichrist everywhere you know i'm like dude chill out <laughs> when the antichrist comes you'll know yeah yeah it, 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 you'll know i don't think you're going to find him before he steps onto the world stage how many people have said oh yeah there he is i know that one that, that guy's the antichrist it's usually the political figure that you disagree with the most. Oh, orange man Trump, he's probably the Antichrist. I don't know. I don't know. I don't care. I don't care. I don't give a lick who the Antichrist is. You know, I care about the Lord, and the Lord's going to beat him. But there's one thing that needs to be addressed now that comes out of all of that debate about um, eschatology, and that is imminency. You see, are we looking for the Lord, or are we looking for signs? Because that's going to make a big difference about how we live. Are we looking for the Lord, or are we looking for Antichrist, rebuild the temple, you know, uh, Israel is a nation that already happened. How many rapture predictions came out after uh, May, was it May 14th, 1948, when Israel became an official nation? Oh, yeah, it was like 40 years after that. So May 14th, 1988, pack, well, don't pack your bags. I say pack your bags. You're not taking them. Uh, you're going to get raptured, right? And then the, the, the huckster that I loved the most was the person who said, there was a guy predicting the rapture. He's predicted like three, four times. And obviously been wrong every time. 
But there was some associate that he had with him who promised for a fee to take care of your pets after you were raptured. And it was a girl, and she said, you know what, I don't believe in the rapture thing, I, you know, I'm, so I'm going to be left behind, but if you want me to take care of little Fluffy and, and Sprinkles, I will for like 150 bucks. It's going cheap. Yeah, and you've got to pay me now before you go, of course. You know people gave her money. Yeah, God didn't say he called all the smart people, that's for sure. Go to, Titus, go to Titus chapter 2. That's what, you know, I'm not smart either, I, but what I do believe in the literal interpretation of the Scripture. And, when, and that makes, at times when I use it, it makes me wise. That's what makes us wise, is having the Scripture, knowing it, and, and being able to know literally what's going to happen. I, I can't tell you everything that's going to happen. But, <clears throat> so, one thing is that the Lord could come back at any moment. Could happen today. And that changes our perspective, right? Jesus said, live for today, don't worry about tomorrow. And then he said, I'm coming back when you don't know. And those go hand in hand. And it's wonderful. Let it go. Right? Do God's will. Seek first His kingdom. Everything will be added to you. So we as believers should be relaxed, at peace, gentle. When everybody's hair is on fire because of the latest news, we can be calm and think. Say, let me tell you about what hope is. Because it ain't in uh, current events or coming events. Titus 2.11 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Good Lord, I love how simple that is looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, great deity verse for the Lord, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. <clears throat> so, uh, that I mean, how do you not get imminency out of that? Uh, if, if you don't get imminency out of that, you're not just you're not comprehending language. You know, language has rules, and because language has rules, it can convey thought. You know, since la- la- like politicians try to use language in ways that don't have rules, or they use language in ways that have no commitment to one or the other, <laughs> so they can stay neutral. But when it comes to language like this. It states what? That he's going to appear and that we're looking for it. It doesn't say looking for signs, for the Antichrist, for the temple. He's not saying that. He says looking for the blessed hope and appearing of our Lord. That's what we're looking for. It's a great imminency verse. Now, some... In a, well, I might as well use it because I've already used it. But the, the gentleman who sent me these, who's a post-trib rapturist, 
intimated in these well-done tracks, i got to say. Uh, but he intimated to me or suggested to me in his work that people who believe that the Lord could come back at any time are not going to be serious Christians. That was part of his argument. And I can understand that. In other words, why, why should I live holy? This is what uh, Paul wrote here to Titus, sensibly, righteously, godly, uh, zealous for good deeds. If I'm just going to go to heaven any minute, what's the point? And, you know, I can imagine some people think like that. But do they truly understand the truth of the scripture that God, the message that God has given to them about their election and their, the plan of God for their lives? They don't get that. Sure, there's always going to be a few outliers or a few people who are going to use various doctrines to their own ends so that they can live carnally. That's always been true. It's, are really all the post-trib rapturists just the most godly people in the world because they're getting ready for the tribulation? You like my pose there? It's my tribulation pose. I am ready for the tribulation. Right? Why do we live godly? Because of when Christ is coming back? No. We long for him to come back. But we live godly because he's our Lord. And he has made us who we are. See, Paul here says he's coming back at any time. But God has instructed us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, sensibly means soberly, righteously, godly, and zealous for good deeds. Amen to that. And by the way, there's no greater life. There is no greater life than living like that. So we're not looking for signs of his coming. We're looking for him. We're looking for him. I guarantee you that in every generation of the church, people have seen the signs that have happened around them. Crumbling economies, world wars. How about in 70 AD where Jerusalem was completely destroyed by the Romans? You think the believers thought the rapture was coming then? You bet they did. How many times has it been said to you or have you said, and I'm not faulting you for this. My opinion doesn't matter anyway. That, yeah, did you hear about blah, 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 blah? Rapture's got to be coming soon. Right, we've all done it. But it's always in our generation. You know, it's, it's, it's difficult for us to comprehend now how people can live the way that they do and do what they do. We say the Lord's got to come and just stop this, flush the toilet, you know. But that's been in every generation. Things can get a lot worse. It could be a lot better. So why do we need hope and comfort? Since the, the theme of this passage is hope and comfort, why do every one of us need that? Because there are a lot of things in this world that are designed to make us fear. See, for a lot of people, the, the pathway to hope is that all problems are eliminated. Right. He goes away. <laughs> she goes away. Right. So-and-so gets elected. This law gets abolished. That neighbor of mine and his dog 
that dog dies. That would be great. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of things designed to make us fear. And the elimination of the things that cause, that can cause the fear is not the solution. You know, if that pain in my back or my, let's think of where my pains are. They've been in my back and my feet. My, now, lately, it's been a left knee. You know, if all of those old man pains would go away, I'd be happier. That's a lie. That's a lie. There are a lot of things in this world designed to make us fear. That is their very purpose. When we understand that, we, right, is the, the purpose. Who, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, right? So who's running the world designing things to make people fear? If you get people to fear, you can control them. It works in marketing. It works in politics. It works with all the elites. The 1% or half a percent of the people have all the money in this world. It works. Now, the greatest fear is death. And if you've conquered that, then you can find life. Death is the greatest of the fears. If Satan sees, however, that we no longer fear death, because, so, you know, as a believer, you understand you're saved. And if death came... None of us know how we're going to handle it until it comes. But if it came, I'm sure you'd be at peace. I don't know. I just finished a book about the Lusitania. I listened to it, coming, driving in and in and home. And uh, all these, they're survivors, some survivors, and they all related the fact that while there, it might have been the cold water that made them calm, uh, who knows. But a bunch of them, even though they had faced their death and were like, you know what, it's here. It seems, I can't imagine they were all believers, I don't know, but it seems even for the unbeliever, once death comes upon them, they kind of give over to it. I, I can't say that for sure, though. But I know for sure that in a believer, once death is upon you and you know it, that faith in the gospel, even if, I, I would think, I, I can't say this because it, it goes against the doctrine of divine grace, what I'm about to say, and I don't want to do that. Let's just say that divine grace for us, for those of us who have believed and know, that we're going to be at peace. And if you know that, then great. You have never feared anything since. Not true. If Satan knows that you don't fear death anymore, he's going to find stuff in life for you to fear. And that comes from hearing the Word of God and not having faith in it. The Exodus generation. It was written about them in Hebrews chapter 4. The word they heard didn't profit them because they didn't mix it with faith. And they feared in the wilderness. They, the 12 spies who went into the land. They see giants there with big cities. They said, we can't do this. But there were two who said, oh, absolutely we can do this. Why? What was the difference between Caleb and Joshua and the other 10 buffoons? And it was because Caleb and Joshua believed. They believed the word. God said, I'll go before you. I will drive them out. The fact that they're bigger is more exciting. I mean, it's one thing to see God chase out a bunch of midgets. 
makes me think of the circus where they all come out of the car and you're like, whoa, how do they fit so many midgets in that car? We probably can't say midget anymore in our society, but little people. But when God knocks over a Goliath, isn't that, you know, that's part of the story of David and Goliath was Goliath's size. So now apply that to your problem. The bigger the problem, the greater you can see God work. Right? The more God is going to work, the more you'll see. <clears throat> uh, Hebrews 11 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So, uh, Timothy, Paul's companion, in our passage, Timothy has... Uh, gone to Thessalonica as Paul sent him from Athens and he returned with great news concerning the faith, hope, and love of the Thessalonians. They were doing great. However, some form of confusion must have occurred concerning death and resurrection. That's why Paul had to address it, it would seem. And it's not the Thessalonians only who had that issue. In the Corinthians, uh, Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians 15.12, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Also in Corinth, the believers were, some in the church were saying, nah, there's no resurrection. So it, it was an issue. And you can see why. In a world that never, ever heard of all people, yet, you know, like some greats, you would think like, you know, Achilles maybe, or maybe like a guy like Gilgamesh, he's kind of like half God anyway. You know, the fact that these great people would be resurrected and go live on Mount Olympus with the gods, yeah, sure. But, you know, little old me, you know, the farmer, the poor person, the slave. Resurrection for me? Seriously? And that is the hope of the gospel. Absolutely. And you can see why <clears throat> you know, their hope might have waned a little. In that society, you run around telling people that, yeah, I know I'm going to die, but uh, I'm going to be resurrected with Christ. (laughs) What the heck are you talking about? See, you say it now in the West, people have already heard it. A lot. They may not believe it, but they've heard it. They're not shocked by it. But in that world, people would have thought you are a looney tunes. So this hope, you know, what this, again, this passage is about comfort and hope. Comfort and hope. There's only one path in death, and we're all going to take it. And for those of us who have faith, we have comfort and hope. See, we're in the know. It's exciting hope, too. The method of this. I mean, it'd be one thing that I'm here... And then the next minute, I'm in paradise. You know, this happens in some, in some of the movies. I'm thinking of some of the movies, how they try to depict it like you did. And then all of a sudden, it's all the white clouds, and it's kind of hazy. And then things come into focus. And all of a sudden, you're walking on a beautiful beach. And it's basically earth, but nicer. But this, what is described here, Christ, resurrection body is returning to the earth at light speed, I'm thinking. I don't know how fast he's going. 
<coughs> not that I care, but that those who have died with him are returning. Right? You're here in the passage. Look at it. Oh, go back to First Thessalonians, please. First Thessalonians 4. And, uh, one of the first things I learned about finding books in the Bible is that all the T's are together. That was very helpful. Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, and that's it, right? <laughs> I love doing that. Um, let's see. I remain till I will not perceive as the Lord. And there we go. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel. And the, No, it's before that. Sorry. There we go. Uh, verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. That Now that I know a little bit of Greek, it's been quite helpful in certain places. The Greek word here is ago, and it means to lead. So it means that we're following him. Right? When it says it's translated here, uh, will bring, but it's really will lead. Bring is fine. It means the same thing, but it's will lead them with him. So as he's coming, we're behind him. And, you know, this has been, so we asked all these questions of, (coughs) excuse me, of things that we don't know. What kind of bodies are we in? Because then it continues, the dead in Christ shall rise first. So we who are dead are following with him. He just said that in verse 14. And then in verse 16, our bodies are coming up from the earth. So, you know, what am I in? What body am I in? Personally, I do not care. I think you're going to look great. Smashingly great. You're going to be healthy, happy, handsome. Finally, you're going to be good looking. (laughs) We'll all be like, wow, did you lose weight? You look great. Yes, resurrection. Uh, yeah, I don't know what body we're going to be in there. Uh, you know, there's all kinds. Of, I've seen it where people have tried to go to passages and say, well, here's the interim body and all of that. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, none of it's for sure. I am certainly a literalist when it comes to the scripture. And if God doesn't spell it out plainly, I just leave it. Um. But this is exciting, is it not? Now, second coming, which is after the wedding feast in Revelation 19, this beautiful description in Revelation 19 of our wedding feast with the Lord, all of us who have died and, well, been raptured according to our dispensationalism and are in heaven with him and celebrating that wedding feast. And we're all dressed in white. And we return with him. And in Revelation 19, it says at that time we return with him riding on white horses. And I mean, how could could you possibly picture it? Beyond being able to picture it is the comfort and hope and excitement that this should give you and me. And that, so when I look at life looks a little, at times it just bombards our brains where our lives look a little grayer, a little drabber, and a bit depressing. It happens to us all. 
And you've got to remind yourself at those times before your brain gets carried away with it because it's a lie that this isn't my world. This is temporary. And you know what's here? Things designed to make me fear, which God is allowing to happen to me so that he can test me because it's here now in this drab world with a lot of evil and sinful people and with this body, this flesh that doesn't want to do what God wants it to do. That I'm, this is the place where I put muscle on my faith. This, here. It says in Romans 8, if we see what we're hoping for, we're no longer hoping for it. The context is, we've already got our resurrection bodies and we're in heaven. But he says in that passage, and he's talking about where, <clears throat> and it's true, in that pa- Romans 8, I think it's 22 and 24, I've got it at the end of my notes here. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. And not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. It's Romans 8.23. Do you not groan within yourselves? We all do at times. But we're longing for this, what? Redemption of our bodies, which is resurrection bodies. Heaven. Returning with the Lord. That is our certain destiny. So, faith follows the Lord's footsteps. They're guaranteed it is coming. I'm following Him. You know, isn't it great that in eternity, when He returns, it's a one-time event, well, two times, you know, we're rapture believers, so rapture and then second coming. So you get to do it twice. And... That's it, you know, so that event is that event. The rapture happens once, the second coming happens once. <clears throat> and at those times, we're all, it doesn't matter, the, the believer who was a spiritual champion and the believer who just kind of ignored things and tried to live for the flesh and didn't get with it, we're all going to follow the Lord. It says at the, at, the, at the wedding feast, the great and the small are clothed in white and are there rejoicing at the wedding feast. The great and the small. It means that all of us are. Not one will be excluded. And that's the truth of the matter. I, I know that some believers take that truth and say, oh, great, I want to be the small so I can live for my flesh and do what my flesh wants to do. And do. <clears throat> you have that choice. It's obvious you have that choice. But God doesn't stop you from He didn't stop me from doing it. And He's not going to stop you from doing it. God is pleading with us. He's saying, you know, I've adopted you as a son. Don't be a brat. Follow me. I say, well, I want to be a brat. He's going to say, go ahead. When you're miserable, and you will be. You'll know why. And if you deny it, well, I'll make you know why. That's what a loving father does. That's called discipline. All of us bear the stripes. (laughs) All of us do. (coughs) So, 
If this is guaranteed, and it is, how does that affect our walk now? It doesn't. The trials aren't going away. They are not. Thank God they're not. Trials will either make us focus harder on the path or distract our minds from it. But the key within trials is to make us focus harder on the path. Sometimes it will distract us from the path. And look, it doesn't even mean that at times, you know, for some people they're like, well, this is too hard, I want to choose another path. But for some, and I think this is more common, that we don't want to choose another path, it's just that we get so focused on the issue that we forget about the path. It's not like we want to be pagans or we want to do something else besides Christianity. The problem is, is the problem if we're focusing on it. You know, I'm hyper-focusing on him or her or it. And we forget in that moment. These things are designed to test us and to put muscle on our faith. <clears throat> it's a, a wonderful that God has designed our bodies to feel anxiety, and we're very sensitive to it. Especially if you've lived some time in peace. I mean, truly, the peace of God is truly in this brain of yours. If you've lived that, and you're very sensitive to anxiety and fear and worry. And God has designed us this way. Even the smallest amount of anxiety, we know it. So we have to stop, remember, pray. And you're like, <coughs> is he worth? See, here's what I do. I don't know what I'm looking for. Say, say this book is my peace. This book, this is the greatest you want a theological book? Here it is. This is the greatest theological book. Um, here's my piece. And then somebody, something, attracts my attention. It's maybe painful, maybe annoying. And I look at it, or him or her, and I go, here, take that. That's yours. It's not that they're going to get your peace. It's that you handed it away. You gave it away. For what? Now, if we all know that, what a great illustration, Pastor, you're great. Thank you. Are we never going to do it again? No, of course you are. <laughs> but then you'll t- say, wait, wait a minute. Give me that back. Give me that back. Right? It, what you must not do is give it away and, and, and keep it away. Grab it back. All right, prodigal son can return at home anytime. We're not even talking about being prodigal. But that's actually what that is. Prodigality means to waste. You're just giving away. Don't give it away. Nobody's worth it. So let me show you. I, I know I only got a couple minutes here. Go to Psalm 77. I just... <clears throat> we'll just look at the end, well, beginning and the end. Look at Psalm 77, and then, and then I'll be quiet. Israel has to follow God, do they not? <clears throat> so often the depiction in the Scripture, Israel following Moses through the wilderness, how did they do? 
But God, who led them in the wilderness? God did. And so I want you to imagine God, through his footsteps are there somewhere in, the, in that wilderness, the Negev Desert, which is very southern Palestine. Right? I know that they're not there, but just imagine they're there. Then he led them into the promised land. God's footsteps are across the Jordan. Right? He stopped the Jordan. They all walked across. Who led them? All throughout the promised land while they, they fought all the, the ites that were in the land. He led Joshua all around, north, then central, then south. He conquered the place. God led him. Footsteps. He followed him. And then comes the Lord. There's all this prophecy of the coming of the Messiah and his footsteps. Born of a virgin. Born in Bethlehem. John the Baptist who announces his coming. Right? His footsteps. And then he calls his disciples. They follow him all over. Galilee, Judea, Perea, which is off to the east, and even to the coast to the west. He leads them all around. They follow him. Footsteps. And then he gets hung on a cross. His feet are lifted off the ground. And there he dies. But then he starts walking again. Resurrection body. He walks through the very rock of the tomb. Walks out. Appears to Mary. Appears to the rest. And leads them around for 40 days. He says, meet me in Galilee. And they do. Footsteps. They follow him. And then, whoosh, up he goes. No more footsteps. Or are there? He leaves behind his word, his will, his spirit who indwells us. And he says, Pick up your cross and follow me. We're not following them around, you know, geographically. Here in our hearts, we're doing his will and following him. And the footsteps will come back when we return with him from heaven. It says that we, he leads us. We follow him. Now, while he's at the right hand of God... I'd say we're on our own, in in a way we are, because he's not here physically, but he's given us his spirit, his word, and our faith to follow him. Follow those footsteps now. That's all that matters in this life until the footsteps come back. That's all that matters. And so this... I mean, it's, it sounds so awesome. It really is. Of course it's awesome. But there are times, just like this psalmist, this, one of us, this is written by Asaph, one of David's chief musicians. Look at verse 1. Uh, Psalm 77, My voice rises to God, I will cry aloud. My voice rises to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. In the night, my hand was stretched out without weariness. My soul refused to be comforted. When I remembered God, then I am disturbed. When I sigh, then my spirit grows faint. Salah. You have held my eyelids open. What a beautiful way of saying I can't sleep. I am so troubled I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of long ago. I will remember my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart and my spirit ponders. 
the opening of this, we see a man who is distressed, who is reaching out for God. He says his hand is stretched out without weariness. Where are you? God didn't appear to him. I didn't say, how many times in my life have I said to God, if you'd just show up right now and just like, just be there. Just sit by me. Show me yourself. That'd be great. And he's like, yeah, it would be. But that's not going to do you any good right now. Because I am increasing your faith. What you want is a quick pill that's going to take the pain away. But what I want for you is strength. And strength demands pain at times. So, the writer of this psalmist, who is in pain, as he continues, he's going to remember something. And this is where he's going to find his peace. So, we have to go all the way to the end. Verse 16, last stanza. The waters saw you, O God. He's talking about the Red Sea here. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you, and they were in anguish. Right? You meant this imagery is like the Red Sea being afraid of God. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth the sound. Your arrows flashed here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the, the lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters and your footprints may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Your paths, look at verse 19, there's my point. Your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters and your footprints may not be known. What I, what I see in this imagery is the footprints are not known because the water went back. But they're there. They're somewhere under the Red Sea, the footprints of God, who led the Israelites across dry land. Just like he did the Jordan, just like he did through Palestine, and just like they will come back again. We, we get worried, stressed, or whatever. We've got to remember, what can God do? What will he do? This psalmist remembers the Red Sea. And of course, at the Red Sea, the people are in anguish. The Israelites are scared. And God delivers them. God will deliver. And that is certain for the future. But now in time, if you seem to lose hope and lose comfort, remember this. You're going to return with the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your promises. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have so blessed us with the truth of the future. No matter what we face in time, Father, we know that you are coming to get us, whether by death or in life, that we know we have our destiny with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in heaven and resurrection body. And so, Father, as death does not make us fear, Teach us how to live and live abundantly. We ask in Christ's name, amen. All right, standard operating procedure 
is we'll take our offering, and that'll be it. We can send you out into the rain again. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for uh, the opportunity to give, and we give in worship of you, Father, towards um, the, the ministry and the communication of your word. We ask that you give us the uh, wisdom to use your finances uh, to your glory. We ask in Christ's name, amen. close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for our gathering. Thank you for the royal family by which we can share your truth, which is so much uh, is enjoyable uh, to be together, to share in what you have done and will do. And to anyone listening who has not come to believe in Christ as their Savior, I beg you to please consider who is the Lord Jesus Christ and what his or who he is in terms of uh, not what is portrayed about him in the world. He's more than a man. He's a God-man. He's more than a good teacher. He is the truth embodied. He is God. And as God, he became a man and died for the sins of the world. He died for your sins and for all sins. And therefore, if you believe upon him, you will be saved. He has given you a gift. He's holding it out to you. You have to receive it, though. And you receive by faith, by believing in Him. And if you do so, you will be saved. Thank you, Father, and bless this day. In Christ's name, amen.